Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 42, it's 1979, and all hell is breaking loose as the Rhodesian bush war reaches its apogee and Swabo increases its incursions into Avambaland and down into the Triangle of Death further south. In this episode, we'll meet an extraordinary woman called Tani Pompey, real name Pompey Pantavestes. She has been lauded and memorialized by retired members of the SADF for good reasons. It's not every day that civilians play such a crucial role in communication in the midst of a war, and Tani Pompey was one of those indefatigable figures that history produces every now and then. By February 1979, Swapo incursions became known as the Winter Games in a kind of counterintuitive symbolic phraseology because these were now taking place mainly in the summer. But it was during the rainy season, so the Winter Games, as they were known, accelerated, starting at this point. The Triangle of Death lay between Tsumeb, Otavi and Grootfontein. The triangle starts around 80 kilometers southeast of Atosha Pan and is well watered, making the bush thick and extremely useful as cover if you're planning attacks on farms, which was precisely what Swapo was planning. By the start of 1979, locals were being asked to join the commandos or civilian units because it was clear that Swapo's armed wing plan were in the area. Pompey van der Westezen had heard word of the shots and explosions being reported near her parents' house in the Oshikango district, closer to Angola's border. Her kids would now talk of how the tourists, the tourists were close. Of course, they were confounding that word with the other at the time, terrorists. Still, the war seemed far away. The family lived on the farm Kudusfle, and the sounds of war were approaching year by year, starting in 1975, when Portuguese refugees fled south from Angola, away from their war of independence, then the terrible civil war. 61 Mech had also recently arrived, and there was going to be a close working relationship between the farmer's wife, who was a wizard with military radio procedure, and the battalion, as you're going to hear through the series. By November 1979, 61 Mech was ensconced in their base at Umutia, where they'd remained for the duration of the border war. The people of the Triangle of Death farmed a variety of crops. The Ruets on the farm wilderness, for example, produced watermelons. Others farmed cattle and some had game parks. These are large farms, for the most part, isolated and therefore exposed. South of the Catlan, the Tsumeb commander was responsible for protection services here, the early warning system. The sand roads were swept by buffalo troop carriers dragging logs or metal bars, which meant anyone walking these routes during the dry season would be easy to spot. During the summer rainfall period, that became more difficult. Thus, Swapo focused their activities between the months of November and April to a large extent. There was one big problem with the drag road strategy anyway. Swapo would already be inside northern southwest Africa when their spoor was spotted. So in May 1979, Willem and Lena Ruet loaded their bucky full of watermelons and headed off to Tsumeb. They left Granny and two youngsters behind, their son who was three and their daughter who was around four. The other children were attending boarding school in Tsumib. Up to this point in the border war, white Namibian civilians had been spared the pain of the civil war raging inside Angola and the summary executions of Avamboland officials and black civilians inside northern southwest. It was only a matter of time, though, before the white farmers were going to find themselves targeted. Life wasn't going to be a simple matter of Braafleis and Brannevein and Opskop anymore. German southwesters such as Reinhard Friedrich a third-generation local of the area, were more aware of what was likely to happen next. He'd been training his sand or bushman workers to prepare for the bad days likely to come since the late 1960s, 
and while other farmers in the area sniggered behind his back at times, his prep work was going to come in handy shortly. He lived east of the Ruitz Farm wilderness further along the dirt track out of Tumit. Mr. Reinhardt was growing concerned about other matters. As the threats increased, the local police and the SEDF and South West African Defence Force appeared to be at odds and did not share information. That's a bit dense in the middle of an existential threat, you'd say, but not unusual, unfortunately, is often conflict amongst various security forces. There was also an ongoing war about who were the best trackers. Was it the police or the defence force? What is known as a pissing competition, which makes your head shake these days, but on the 8th of May 1979, this refusal to share information was going to turn deadly. The war was going to become very personal for German southwester Friedrich, who received a shocking phone call that morning that the Ruetz had been murdered and Swapo was close to his farm, or perhaps already on it. What made this man extremely angry was that the Defence Force apparently knew by the evening of the previous day, May 7th, that Swapo guerrillas were in the area but didn't raise the alarm preparing to attempt an ambush, which then failed. They also wanted to avoid panic by staying stumm about planned guerrillas who'd made it far south. Swapo fighters merely bypassed the army ambush and killed Grandmother Ruet and her two grandchildren. Plan wanted to do it quietly, so they slit their throats. The young girl and grandmother were found in the house. The boy had tried to escape and was hiding outside near the car when Plan caught up with him and killed him there. By now, Swapo had decided that all white and black civilians were targets, more so the whites, because they could try and convince black civilians to join the revolution. But they knew white farmers would neither support black majority rule nor the concept of a socialist or communist regime, so killing white children was par for the course. It was Marxist dogma of the 70s, extremely violent, religious in its fervor, fundamentalist in its explosive hatred. This philosophy followed the dialectic dreamed up by German nationalist philosopher Hegel in the 19th century. The idea of absolute idealism and Hegel influenced Marx directly. Swapo had seen their children bombed at places like Savannah, so now they were going to slit the throats of Boer children. At least that was the narrative of the time. On the other side, the farming community had reinforced apartheid separation and were determined to maintain the myth of the white tribe seeking its promised land. For generations, most of these hardy farmers had regarded themselves as deliverers of civilization and Calvinism to people they regarded as Stone Age. They tried to insulate themselves as a white minority from the black majority, and now the infants were directly in line for special revolutionary attention. Both sides here were hell-bent in the 70s and most of the 80s on killing each other, lock, stock and smoking barrel. So Reinhard Friedrich put down the phone in some shock and thought he couldn't sit around waiting for Swapo to pitch up and shoot him dead in his own farmhouse. But the police were told to stand down for the moment as the army commanders were dealing with the Swapo guerrillas. By 10.30 on the morning of the 8th of May, the Ruetz children and grandma were dead, and soon so was Reinhard Friedrich's uncle called Adolf. This was a personal war for the civilians. The Defence Force commanders and special forces were on the trail of Swapo guerrillas who kept moving. These guerrillas were extremely fit and could trot all day. They had very little to carry. A few magazines of AK ammunition, the automatic weapon, a little water, hardly any food. 
They were the Namibian version of the Viet Cong, but even these hardy fighters could not escape the Alouette gunships, the Buffels, the Rattles, the Illens, who were now hunting them down. The biggest problem for Swapo is they could only go in one direction after a military attack, north, towards the cut line. Between them and the safety of Angola was increasingly open sandy bushland, and their trackers were lusting for revenge. It turned into a desperate race, and for Reinhardt there was definitely revenge on his mind. He was still in shock, but also angry, as he languished back at his farm until late in the afternoon on the 8th, when the commandos announced they'd lost the spoor or the track of the insurgents and asked the police to take over. So Reinhardt and other police trackers rushed to the point where the spoor was lost, and his men picked up the trail, then the sunset. The next morning they found tracks and continued the hunt. The sand trackers were out in front, followed by an armoured vehicle, but Swapo had been running all night, so the followers were far behind and had to increase their tempo. In bushy terrain, it's harder to follow a trail, particularly for one man, so a simple but effective technique was deployed to cope with the patches of grass and the muddy pools. One man would remain on the central track, one on his left and right, and within eyesight, two others would move along through the bush using hand signals. When the track shifted to the left or the right because of a thorn bush or thicket, he'd hand over to his fellow tracker and they'd shift left or right, with the middle man ending up back on the main trail once more. All done in silence, of course. And these trackers knew the terrain, so after a few kilometres they would begin to guess where the Swapo guerrillas were headed. A gunship would be called in and stopper groups would be dropped ahead at the water point or natural beacon, a large group of trees or a dry river bed. Then they came across a large road running east-west. The Swapas, as they were called, the SW Army, Radio to say that they had a cunning plan. They would stop Swapo by riding their motorbikes back and forth on the road so that the guerrillas would be frightened away. Of course, that appears to have been a plan dreamed up by folks who haven't spent a great deal of time tracking other folks. It may have worked against animals, but not against humans. You keep silence as your weapon and driving motorbikes back and forth merely gives away your position and the Swapo stick crossed the road behind one of these motorbike sorties, then disappeared once more. Meanwhile, back at Sumeb, Commandant Johann Dupenau, who is in charge of 61 Mech, gave orders to crush the Swapo insurgents, and Operation Carrot was born. But it was more stick than carrot. There would be no prisoners taken, but this was not a formal order. It was just known. 2,000 troops were gathered from Grootfontein, Otavi and Sumeb, both national servicemen and permanent force. The farmers of the Triangle of Death were demanding protection and Dippenard had to move to quell what started to appear like a mini-uprising first. German farmer Reinhardt personally confronted Dippenard and let him know what he thought about the escaping swapper guerrillas. He was beside himself with anger that his uncle was now shot dead by the same and then to compound the terrible moment there was the idiotic action of riding motorbikes around like they were trying to scare wild animals. These were highly trained insurgents, not Eland. But they had one positive piece of news. The Swapo soldiers responsible for the farm attacks were still inside of Umberland. They still had not managed to make it north of the cut line. Because of the huge increase in manpower, every road, track, water point and cattle trail and village was being watched. The army also managed to rope in a number of Bavambos as eyes and ears. Eventually, these attackers would have to get water or food somewhere. Two soldiers were assigned to each farmhouse. Alouette gunships continued their low-level sorties, 
Soldiers were on horses. This was not going to end well for these planned guerrillas. They had broken up now into small groups, and one by one they were hunted down. Eventually, on the 20th of May, two weeks after the Ruetz and Adolf Friedrich were buried, the infiltrators were all killed. Some say the number of Swapo killed topped 30, and it was the first time that 61 mech had been deployed. As I've said, the irony was that this battalion was set up on conventional lines, but its first action had been in an unconventional role. As farmers in the Triangle took stock, there was no rejoicing. Omar Ruet had been buried with her two grandchildren in a single grave. Adolf Friedrich on the farm. They would not be the last farmers killed in the border war. On the 8th of June 1979, almost a month later, Tani Pompey van der Westezen was sitting in her kitchen listening to her military two-way radios when she picked up urgent information. This was after the Triangle of Death had been supposedly declared free of danger, when 12 Swapo guerrillas crossed the cutline once more and headed into this troubled area further south. This time they were tracked before they had a chance to attack farmhouses and the firefight developed. Corporal Swart of the Swaspis dog unit was shot dead on this night fight and his animal then ran off in shock. Bizarrely, the dog showed up a few days later on Pompey van der Westezen and her husband Donkey's farm Kudusvlei and was later picked up by the dog unit. And so the follow-up operations continued through June, and on the 22nd, more Swapo insurgents were killed. This fight took place in a symbolic part of Southwest, at the Combat Copper Mine, south of Tsumib, at the bottom of the Triangle of Death, halfway between Otavi and Grootfontein. This lies in the Otavi Mountains, and is where the Sand People and the Damaras fought off the Germans almost a hundred years earlier. It's also close to Korab, where General Louis Boerte had defeated the Schutztruppe, thus ending German occupation of Southwest Africa in 1915. The history of this land flows in bloody circles, as Dion Lamprecht remarks in his book on Pompey van der Westezen called Tani Pompeyse Oorlog, Auntie Pompey's War. This spiral of violence would continue with Swapo seeking blood in the south and the SADF seeking blood in the north. Outfoxing the opponent became the byword, with both sides seeking to trick the other into making deadly mistakes. Southwest African commander General Yanni Geldenhuis was trying to perfect what he called fox operations and sharpen his men's wits and fighting spirit, while Sam Nuyoma, the Swapo leader, was cajoling his men and women north of the cutline. Swapo now was suffering from morale problems, interrogation of prisoners and reports from SADF intelligence in the operational area and from inside Angola painted a pretty gloomy picture of morale, including public executions of would-be deserters. Abductions of Avambaland civilians also increased, with at least 450 reported in 1979. Although many of these weren't abducted, they voluntarily signed on as Swapo freedom fighters. Southern Angola now had turned into an even more terrible place of carnage, and UNITA had begun to affect MPLA supply lines, leading to food shortages at times. This in turn caused citizens to raid each other for basic foodstuffs. By September 1979, General Yanni Geldenhuis went on the record when he spoke to media saying he believed the tide had turned. That Swapo was weak, although a long struggle lay ahead. He was both incorrect and correct. The tide had not turned, but the struggle would be long indeed. On the same day, Geldenhuis went on record, the 11th of September, Angola's President Agostino Neto arrived in Russia on a state visit and promptly died. Some say suspiciously. It was a rather and abrupt symbolic end for a man 
who had survived two coup attempts already at home in Africa. He had sparked infighting in Angola by appointing light-skinned Portuguese-speaking mulattoes or mixed Angolans to senior military positions, ignoring blacks. There's always someone staring at someone else's skin colour in Africa, wondering about these things. Then, on the 1st of October 1979, settlement talks went into another round when South Africa's UN ambassador, Rion Ekstein, was handed a revised independence plan drawn up by Western nations. Amongst other things, the SADF would be allowed to maintain five bases within a 50-kilometre DMZ along the border for the first three months. They would be confined to these bases for 12 weeks and then withdrawn close to elections. That plan went down like a lead balloon with Swapo as well as the SADF. Swapo said it would only respond when the entire text had been presented, while African nations said it was unlikely that Pretoria would stick to its word. While the ponderers pondered, further north, the zimbabwe Rhodesian negotiations were on the go in London and both Swapo and the South Africans were watching these with a great deal of interest. Meanwhile, Commandant Dion Ferreira of 3-2 Battalion was perfecting FOX operations along with Major Mossi Basson of the SA Air Force. They had established tactical headquarters at Ianhana, right on the Angolan border. It had been founded in 1930 by Finnish missionaries who of course would have turned in their graves if they had seen what was going on in 1979. 3-2 Battalion conducted operations in the Angolan border area and were constantly involved in skirmishes and contacts, as they were known. Trickery and deceit was the order of the day. Troops would be positioned at selected places north of the border, where they stacked waste oil rags and old tires. Then an Alouette helicopter with smoke grenades attached would fly above the area and dive suddenly as though meeting its end. At the same time, the grenades would be released, leaving a dark trail of smoke. As it reached the area where rags and tires were set up, and by now at treetop level or lower at times, the troops would set the pile on fire and the chopper would then head back to base at a low level. The idea was to trick Swapo into believing that it had been downed. An ambush was readied for any Swapo soldier. Of course, this wasn't carried out arbitrarily. First, there had to be Swapo around somewhere. So the SADF would wait for sign of spur or reports of a Swapo stick in the area and the idea was to attack from a position of strength. They needed a clear view of the firefight. This trick was used time and again across the western and eastern Angolan regions and into Zambia. Gelnes also deployed an unusual weapon at this time. He ordered carbide-powered orchard cannons used in South Africa's Boerland region of the Cape to scare away birds from fruit crops. He ordered these carbide cannons set up near Ianana along a pipeline which had been so regularly sabotaged by plan that the base was now suffering from dry periods. Gelnes thought He'd lay an ambush for plan who'd come to investigate the bangs. Instead of that, the guerrillas stayed away, and troops at Ianhana were able to wash more regularly once more through the end of 1979. By late October of that year, the SADF claimed they'd killed almost 500 Swampa guerrillas, and large numbers were deserting. Physical violence was being used to instill discipline amongst the guerrillas, but Swapo's UN representative, Theo Ben Gurirab, scoffed at these comments. Ominously, he said, Geldenais is daydreaming, busy with wishful thinking. If he wants to live in the world of Alice in Wonderland, let him do so. Gurirab also issued a warning. Swapo was in Namibia to stay, and the armed struggle would only intensify. So, we had two forecasts. Gurirab would be proven 100% correct. 
So if you're keeping score, it's Heldenhes 1, Gurirab 2. The end of the year approached with the usual plans for Christmas, but this year there was a nasty edge to matters. As the rains began once more, the farmers girded themselves for another surge in plan activity inside the Triangle of Death, and 3-2 Battalion and 61 Mech prepared for more action inside Angola. Through November, 147 planned insurgents were killed versus three security force members. The biggest battle took place right at the end of the month when the SADF clashed with a planned group in Ovambalan, killing seven, then following the survivors into Angola and hitting several bases. 61 more planned guerrillas were killed in these follow-up operations. So by early December, the South African government formally accepted the concept of a DMZ subject to their own conditions. Then another 25 insurgents died at the end of December, along with four more security force members. The death toll was going up. But 1979 had been difficult for Swapo. They'd achieved little in the way of military gains and lost almost 1,000 men and women. But the SADF and SWATF had fared badly too. At least 50 security force members had died, which was a massive spike in casualties. The number of contacts had almost doubled in one year, from under 500 in 1978 to well over 900 in 1979. 55 locals had died in landmine explosions. 102 had been murdered by Swapo, including 18 tribal headmen and six white farmers or family members. More than 50 cases of sabotage had been reported on power lines, water pipes and telephone lines. Thus, Swapo was ready for 1980, and in February of that year, the insurgents had another go at killing farmers in the Triangle of Death. This led to one of the more dramatic attacks on a farmhouse ever recorded, taking place 45 kilometers south of Grootfontein at a farm owned by the Dressel family. As you're going to hear in the next episode, the 15-year-old daughter of Eberhard Dressel, Sonja, was going to end up fighting single-handed against a planned group in an attack that was going to end badly for the insurgents, but the Dressels would also be bloodied. Plan attacks also started even earlier in January, and they would draw the first blood of 1980. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can and head off to the website abwarpodcast.com where you can send me an email. If you're really in need of a quick chat, you can reach me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. And a quick thank you to Nick at War Dog Actual. We've been talking for a while and he's kindly sent me one of his really classy War Dog t-shirts, which was a gift. Well received. Thank you, my friend. So until next, goodbye. Goodbye.